passage is this whole get behind me Satan thing. This somewhat heated exchange between Jesus and Peter, what is that about? So I'm reading it through and my first thought is that Peter doesn't want to hear his friend predict his own torture and death. It's kind of like a, you know, don't say things like that kind of thing. And that very well could be part of it, but I also think that Peter is a little worried about what it might mean for him and his people, this, this movement that he's joined that's slowly gathering steam. I mean, for a few hundred years at least, they were thinking that the Messiah would be a strong and powerful king, a military leader who would throw off the yoke of oppression once and for all and liberate the Jewish people and usher in an era of peace. And here's Jesus acknowledging that he is the Messiah, but then going on to tell them that, well, actually, he's going to be rejected by the elders, the religious elite, that he'll undergo immense suffering and then be killed. So it's not exactly the Messiah they were looking for. And on a macro level, it's disappointing for sure, for, for the, disappointing for the movement that they thought Jesus would kick off. But... Also, on a micro, more immediate level, the implications aren't ideal. I mean, what would discipleship of a suffering Messiah look like? If the Messiah were someone ushering in God's rule with power and authority and military might, well, then surely his followers would enjoy some protection by association. After all, if no one dares mess with the general, not many are going to mess with his foot soldiers. But if the Messiah himself is being persecuted and tortured and betrayed, if the Messiah isn't even protected from that, what then of his disciples? Does this mean that they too will face persecution and suffering? Have they picked the wrong horse? Well, not the wrong horse, but the wrong race altogether. I think that that is what Jesus is getting at when he tells Peter off and says, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Yes, Jesus is there to usher in God's rule. Yes, Jesus is there to work to bring peace to the land, to throw off the yoke of oppression. But this isn't via a military victory. This is via starting a movement of radical love, of Ending oppression by first looking within ourselves for the ways in which we are complicit with injustice. This isn't a completed within a generation earthly battle. This isn't an earthly matter. This is a moral arc of the universe kind of concern. This is a divine concern. It's not as neat as falling in line behind the mighty king. It's about, as Jesus reminds us, taking up your cross and following this suffering Messiah right into the fray. So there was an interesting question in a commentary that I was reading. It's by a man named Nathan Jennings. And he asks, if sometimes we see the call to discipleship in this story as nothing more than a call to radical social reform, rather than a participation in the pattern of the suffering Messiah. So I'm of the opinion that if we want to know what it really means to take up one's cross, to participate in the pattern of the suffering Messiah, 
We need only look at the model of discipleship that the prophet Isaiah describes in the passage that we heard a few minutes ago. So I'm paraphrasing. A disciple awakens their ears to listen, obeys God's call, and presses forward. A disciple doesn't let threats of violence or persecution stop them from answering God's call, loving radically and speaking truth to power. A disciple knows that God's judgment is more important than any human judgment. A disciple invites their allies to join with them and doesn't run or hide from their adversaries or from confrontation. It's not an easy cross to bear. I mean, look at disciples such as Dr. King or Unitarian Universalist minister James Reed. They were both murdered in 1968 and 1965, respectively, by those who opposed the expansion of civil rights to people of color. Look at women such as Harriet Tubman, nicknamed Moses, who as a conductor of the Underground Railroad led at least 13 expeditions to bring slaves to freedom, risking her life each and every time. Or look at teenagers like Malala Yousafzai, who didn't let an assassination attempt and countless additional death threats pull her off the path of activism. For those who want to save their life will lose it, Jesus tells his disciples. And those who are willing to lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Now we can take this to mean a willingness to give up our earthly, biological lives in pursuit of our soul's divine salvation, or in pursuit of the kind of justice that exists in the kingdom of God. But we also know that like onions, or like ogres for any Shrek fans out there, Jesus' teachings have layers. We know that there is much more that makes a life a life other than just a beating heart and a functioning brainstem. What about our livelihoods, our lifestyles, our clothing, our houses, our finances? What about the way that we interact with family and neighbor and stranger? What about our jobs, our communities? What about our reputations and our high horses? What about our daily comforts and social norms? Are we willing to follow Jesus even if it means that some people may not want to hang out with us anymore? If it means we have to give up certain luxuries? If it means we lose our jobs? If it means we face violence? How far can we carry our own crosses? And it's hard because well, it's, it's so easy. I mean, I don't think many people would fault someone for wanting to avoid an uncomfortable discussion with their in-laws or for shopping at Whole Foods because it's the closest grocery store, or when they're at the store buying Driscoll brand berries because they're what's available. And I wonder if in that verse, if Jesus is saying that to try and remain above the fray, to try and remain non-political, not to be confused with non-partisan, if to try and avoid the discomforts of the struggle for justice if that's to sacrifice a part of your soul. You see, I was out at a function on Friday night and having the usual, you're a pastor, is that the same as a nun? Are you allowed to drink, but you're a woman? Conversation. It's more frequent than you'd think. 
And someone asked me what I was planning to preach on today. And when I informed them that my sermon was on Colin Kaepernick, they started telling me about how, well, they didn't think that ministers should be getting political from the pulpit. And why can't we just leave politics at home? And sports players should just stick to sports, and musicians should just stick to music, and preachers should just stick to religion. And the, the thing is, though, carrying the cross is an inherently political act. Carrying the cross is visible. It's disruptive. Some may call it disrespectful. Why do you have to go bringing politics into the pulpit? I was asked on Friday night. And here's what I told them. So last week, after our cookout, I threw my Brady jersey on and went to a friend's house to watch the Patriots win their season opener against the Texans. (laughs) It wasn't their best game, but I'll take it. It's a complicated relationship, me and football. As many of you know, I am, having grown up in Massachusetts, I am an unapologetically, a little apologetically obnoxious Patriots fan. I played rugby for eight years, so there will always be a small, special place in my heart for contact sports, even as I go about my day-to-day life trying to live out the pacifist values that I aspire to. But I have a problem with the way that the NFL and its collective fandom, myself included, have spent more time griping about Roger Goodell's absurdly harsh treatment of Tom Brady and not enough time talking about the way that the NFL has too often underpenalized, and by underpenalized I mean not terminated the contracts of, or even ignored altogether players who commit acts of domestic violence. This complicated relationship is why as we moved through the end of last season, and then through the off season, and finally into a new football year, I was particularly tuned in to the ways that more and more players, emboldened by the activism of men such as Colin Kaepernick, are using their voices to advocate for social and racial justice. The McCourty twins, both Patriots players, for example, they hosted a recent forum with the Suffolk DA candidates to talk about mass incarceration and racial justice. And in fact, this past year, a group of players and team owners got together and created a $90 million social justice initiative that would work to use their sports celebrity platform to advocate on issues of social and racial justice. Now, the McCourty twins, committee members like Doug Baldwin and Malcolm Jenkins, are still playing. Colin Kaepernick is still blacklisted a result of his using his amplified platform as a sports star to protest the epidemic of shootings of unarmed black men and children opting to kneel during the national anthem, which is the image on today's bulletin. So during the game last Sunday, I saw the now infamous Kaepernick Nike ad. And if you haven't seen it making the rounds on social media, it's all about pursuing big, wild, preposterous dreams. If you're born a refugee, Kaepernick's voice narrates over an image of children playing soccer, don't let it stop you from playing soccer for the national team at age 16. And the camera cuts to Canadian national soccer player and Ghanaian refugee Alfonso Davies, who made his major league soccer debut at age 15. And he goes on, don't become the best basketball player on the planet, as we see a clip of LeBron James at the grand opening of his I Promise school. Be bigger than basketball. 
And finally, the camera cuts to clips of Serena Williams. And if you're a girl from Compton, Kaepernick narrates, don't just become a tennis player. Become the greatest athlete ever. Yeah, that's more like it. Now, in the Nike ad, I saw echoes of this passage from Isaiah. Don't ask if your dreams are crazy, Kaepernick instructs. Ask if they are crazy enough. I'm reminded of how those who were and still are invested in maintaining the status quo often dismiss pursuing God's kind of justice, God's kind of kingdom, God's kind of love as nothing more than a crazy dream. And yet, in the now infamous line and controversial line from the ad, we hear a call to believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. And isn't that what Isaiah is getting at? The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, and therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? All of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. Now, those who point out that Kaepernick hasn't sacrificed everything are correct. He's alive. He has shelter. He has food. He has a family. He has supporters. He hasn't sacrificed everything. And not all of us will be faced with the kinds of choices that heroes such as Dr. King or Malala or Harriet or James faced. Not all of us will carry our crosses along a path that could lead to our death. Most of us may never face the kinds of choices that Malala or Harriet or Martin faced. Most of us don't have the kind of celebrity that gives us a far-reaching platform for activism like Colin has. But we all have a voice. We all have times when we can choose to take on a heavier load for justice sake. When we can choose to pick up the cross and carry it as we follow Jesus into the fray. We all have times when, like Peter, we are totally on board with the end goals of the mission. But when it comes to actually getting there, we prioritize our earthly comforts over taking another step towards justice. Now, there are some of us here who are on the fence, and we know we have a choice to make, and it isn't easy. We are acutely aware of what we would be likely giving up if we make the choice that God is nagging our souls to make. And if this sounds like you and you've been waiting for a sign, consider this it. You can do it. We are here to support you and empower you and help you carry this cross and stand beside you when you face the adversaries of justice. You've got this. And there are also some of us here who aren't quite at the fence yet. And that's okay. I mean, we sign petitions and we carpool and we donate to campaigns for justice and we drive down to D.C. overnight to attend part of the largest protest in United States history. And we do our part. And maybe every once in a while we wonder if there's anything else we can do. 
And if this is you, we're here to help nudge you just a little closer to the fence. Consider this a pebble in your shoe, nagging you ever so gently but persistently to do an inventory of your choices, to suss out where in your life you might be prioritizing your comfort and where you could, if you're really honest with yourself, where you could afford to forego some of that comfort or convenience in the name of justice. And it's okay if you're scared, because we are here with you. You have got this. No, not all of us will face life or death choices. And not all of us will have the natural amplifier that comes with celebrity. But we do all have a voice. Are we willing to make some sacrifices by using our voices to pursue that wild dream of ushering in God's kingdom? Don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they are crazy enough. Amen. <laughs>